the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Delayed just a bit. The jury just returned in the Murdoch case, and they have found him guilty of murdering his wife and his son. This is a trial that's gone on for six months, and it was unclear uh, whether or not he would be found guilty. And apparently the jury has, and in fact, they're announcing this right now, have found, has found him guilty of murdering his wife and his son. More details on that, I'm certain, will be coming uh, in the uh, next few hours. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Sam Maupin engineering. Today on the program, we'll share a classic interview with Kevin Goose, author of Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Also, an article in Christian Post on the ripple effect from Asbury University at secular universities across the country. Now, interestingly enough, uh, some of these university leaders are saying this isn't just the result of what happened at Asbury. There has been a hunger to draw nearer to and deeper, uh, nearer to God and deeper in um, in the faith of many young people on college campuses across the country. And it happened to coincide with events in Kentucky. Anyway, we'll talk a bit more about that in the uh, latter part of this um, second hour of today's program. But first, some of the day's headlines. Yesterday marked the 118th Congress's first Senate Judiciary Committee oversight hearing into Joe Biden's Justice Department, and the committee's Republicans didn't disappoint. Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, and others grilled the Attorney General on everything from fentanyl to open borders to mandatory minimum sentencing. But the Republicans' best moments were of a uniform type, the political weaponization and two-tiered judicial philosophy of the Department of Justice under the current administration. Whether regarding the safety of conservative Supreme Court justices or the selective persecution of uh, pro-life advocates or the criminalization of concerned parents, peaceful activities at local school board meetings, it was... uh, Rather interesting opportunity to hear the attorney general respond directly or at least respond to these issues. We should first stipulate that after all's been said and done at one of these hearings, there's always been a lot more said than done. Still, by the time committee Republicans were through with him, the 70 year old Garland, who probably second guessed his decision to join the administration rather than join um, a semi retirement. Uh, you spend 20 years as a judge, Cruz said, and you perfectly Uh, You're perfectly content with justices being afraid for their children's lives and you did nothing to prosecute when rioters descended on the sixth Supreme Court justices night after night. uh, You did nothing. The department did nothing. Cruz uh, then asked, how do you decide which statutes you enforce and which ones you don't? Well, Missouri's Josh Harley focused, uh, Hawley rather, focused on the FBI's treatment of pro-life activists and the Biden administration's Department of Justice seeming anti-Catholic bigotry. As uh, um, one of the uh, newspapers framed it, I think it was Newsweek, in fact, not a newspaper. Newsweek framed it. Hawley accused the Department of Justice of spying on Catholics, 
citing a case involving Mark Houck, a Catholic anti-abortion or pro-life activist, who was accused of assaulting a 72-year-old man who was escorting a patient into the Philadelphia Planned Parenthood Clinic prior to the 2022 midterm elections. Nate Jackson covered the acquittal of Houck, whose case was particularly outrageous because he'd reportedly offered to turn himself in when he learned he was facing charges. Instead, a massive team of FBI agents raided his home with weapons drawn in full riot gear, terrorizing his wife and young children. He used an unbelievable show of force with guns that I note liberals usually decry, Hawley charged. You're supposed to hate long guns and assault weapons, but you happily deploy them against Catholics and innocent children, and then you haul them into court for a jury to acquit them in one hour. I just suggest to you that that is a disgraceful performance by your Justice Department and a disgraceful use of resources. When Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton got his chance, he quizzed Garland about the murder rate within the uh, home counties of illegals ostensibly seeking asylum uh, here due to the violence in their native lands. Well, the attorney general punted, understandably, so Cotton pointed out that murder rates are actually higher in many big U.S. cities than in the countries um, to our south that are being systematically emptied into our um, uh, ours via Biden policy at the open border. Well, it went on from there. Should American citizens in places like New York and Baltimore and St. Louis began to seek asylum in countries like Honduras and Guatemala under your asylum principles, Cotton asked. Well, the attorney general mumbled something about the governments of those countries being unable or unwilling to protect their citizens, which we're to infer gives those um, in the country illegally who are now number um, some six million during the two years of Joe Biden's presidency, a right to invade our country and avail themselves to the health care system and other finite taxpayer funded services. It was not a, a particularly cordial gathering. Well, one point of seeming agreement between Garland's Department of Justice and Senate Republicans materialized when the committee chairman, Lindsey Graham, pressed the attorney general on whether the Mexican drug cartels, whose fentanyl is killing the equivalent of a full jet airline of Americans every single day, should be designated a terrorist organization. The attorney general didn't object, but he noted that such a decision would be up to the State Department. So the question is, what's keeping Secretary of State Anthony Blinken from doing so? And why hasn't he been uh, hauled before the Republican-controlled House Committee to answer for himself? Well, the U.S. is spending 200, um, what is it, $200 million on uh, a proxy war with Russia, I should say billion dollars, But the administration seems utterly uninterested in fighting a war against a far deadlier enemy, an enemy that's responsible for the deaths of some 300 Americans every single day. Perhaps the most uh, uh, comically tone deaf of Garland's remarks yesterday came when he complained that his Department of Justice didn't have enough resources to do its job. It's a question of the resources, he said, not enough people. Uh, We don't have enough money. We don't have enough uh, jails. We don't have enough judges, end quote. Biden weaponized and woefully biased Department of Justice doesn't have enough resources to properly uh, persecute its political enemies. Um, Merrick Garland was on the uh, the grill uh, earlier today in this committee hearing. It wasn't a pretty sight. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue to wind our way through some of the day's headlines and also coming up in the second hour, Kevin Goose, author of Dry Bones. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to uh, share a conversation with Kevin Goose coming up in the second hour of today's program. Redeeming Your Past is the uh, subject of his book titled Dry Bones. We'll also talk about the ripple effect from the uh, Asbury events at other universities across the country as well that may or may not actually be connected, but there is a, a a cry of the hearts of many of these young people to draw nearer to God. With the start of the hour, I did mention that uh, was announced in the Alec Murdoch um, case. Uh, he was an attorney. Um, in fact, the courtroom that he uh, was being tried in had a portrait of his grandfather or his father. Now I don't remember which of the two that had to be removed. This is a very prominent family in that community. He was convicted earlier today of fatally shooting his wife and son. Um, The trial lasted six weeks. It included testimony from 76 witnesses. He himself took the stand and the deliberation of the jury. Very, uh, very brief. He was convicted of gunning down his wife and son after a panel of 12 jurors spent less than three hours deliberating. Uh, The jury found him guilty of two counts each of murder and weapons possessions without posing a single question to the judge while weighing the case, their decision came after they endured a grueling six-week trial that included a, a visit to the crime scene yesterday and testimony from seven six witnesses, including Murdaugh himself. That now has come to an end. He will be sentenced, if I understand correctly, tomorrow. Well, returning to Attorney General Merrick Garland on Wednesday, he offered a reason why the Department of Justice prosecutors or rather prosecutes pro-life protesters at abortion centers more than pro-abortion vandals who targeted pro-life pregnancy resource centers after the leak of the Supreme Court's draft opinion overturning Roe versus Wade last May. Senator Mike Lee asked the attorney general about the case of pro-life activists. Uh, Mark Houck, who faced charges for violating Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, or FACE Act, a jury found him not guilty. He, uh, and Houck claims that he did uh, did not attack an abortion clinic um, uh, volunteer, um, but he did try to protect his son, who was being harassed by someone on the scene. Well, Garland, uh, Garland noted that the FACE Act applies to protect both abortion centers and pregnancy resource centers, although the enforcement seems to be uneven. I will say um, you are quite right. There are many more prosecutions with respect to the blocking of abortion centers, but that is generally because those actions are taken with photography at the time during the daylight and seeing the person who did it is quite easy, the attorney general said. Those who are attacking the pregnancy resource centers, which are uh, it's a horrid thing to do, are doing this at night in the dark. We have put full resources on it. We have put uh, rewards out for this. The Justice Department and the FBI have made outreach to Catholic and other organizations to ask for their help in identifying the people who are doing this. We will prosecute every case against a pregnancy resource center that we can make. But these people doing this are clever and are doing it in secret. I am convinced that the FBI is trying to find them with urgency, end quote. Well, Catholic Vote, which has uh, tracked the 81 attacks on pregnancy resource centers and the 130 attacks on Catholic churches specifically since the Dobbs leak, faulted Garland's response for failing to distinguish between criminal acts and acts of protest protected by the U.S. Constitution. What Garland doesn't admit is the obvious. The pro-abortion attacks are criminal, which is why they act in secret, the organization posted on Twitter. Pro-life activists are there during the middle of the day because they know what they're doing is legal and protected by the U.S. Constitution. Hmm. Well, President Biden claims women need abortion to be successful 
in his 2023 Women's History Month proclamation. Despite significant progress, women and girls continue to face systematic barriers to full and equal participation in our economy and society. The president's proclamation that was released on the 28th reads, Last year, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, stripping away a constitutional right from the American people, which, of course, the Supreme Court that determines whether or not a right is constitutional said it was not. But that aside, he went on to say, And the ability of millions of women to make decisions about their own bodies, putting their health and lives at risk. The president mentioned abortion and reproductive rights five times in his announcement and cited women's suffrage once. Yet the president appears to be confused about who can have an abortion. The administration will defend reproductive freedom for all Americans, regardless of their gender or gender identity, according to the proclamation. But subscribers to biological reality know that only one gender can get pregnant. Well, this is not the first time the administration is misunderstood intentionally the definition of womanhood. The White House's 2022 fiscal year budget replaced the word mothers with birthing people. How many of you listening today with children are birthing people? The Democrats' May 22 abortion bill used the word persons to refer to um, to those who bear and give birth to children instead of the word woman, women, or female. Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becara He appeared to become flustered when asked to define the term birthing people. I'll check on the language there, he said. But I think if we're uh, talking about those who give birth, (laughs) I think if that's what we're talking about, I think we're talking about I don't know how else to explain it. (laughs) And he's the head of Health and Human Services. Well, Biden's proclamation highlights his administration's work to further abortion. He mentioned his executive orders to safeguard access to reproductive care. That's what they call it, abortion, including medication abortion. Ensure women can receive emergency medical care and protect patients' access to information about their reproductive rights. The president said that he has uh, Congress to pass a law securing the right to choose in every state under uh, undoing the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which returned the power to legislate abortion to the states by overruling Roe versus Wade. He also touted his gender policy council and the so-called Respect for Marriage Act. Women continue to lead as advocates for reproductive rights, champions of racial justice and LGBTQI plus equality, the proclamation said, completely ignoring that at least half the female population stands on the stark opposite end of every one of those issues. The president has chosen to intertwine women's history with a history of abortion and the progress of women's rights with securing a woman's right to end the life of her child in utero. All the while, he doesn't know what uh, makes a woman a woman. It is a confusing age we find ourselves in. Well, instead of pretending abortion is the uh, the keystone to the progress of women, the president, he should have decided to dedicate his attention to the actual accomplishments of women, uh, the accomplishments they've made in America, progress which is worth celebrating every March. Having an abortion is not worth celebrating. Well, three sitting Supreme Court justices are women, and women constitute more than a quarter of the 118th Congress. The House of Representatives is more than 28 percent female. And while women make up half of the Senate, the administration has demonstrated it cares more about ensuring abortion is legal than about what is actually best for women. And if the president thinks abortion is an essential part of a woman's history, he clearly doesn't know what women are capable of. And it is a sad commentary on the age we live in. 
Give me an answer. Josh Hawley grilled President's AG at the anti-Catholic on the anti-Catholic bias of the FBI and the pro-life family raid. Credibility crisis. Media fact checkers who were eager to debunk the COVID lab leak theory had to issue corrections. President Biden is being slammed for chuckling as he discussed a mom who lost two sons to fentanyl. Erasing history of a controversial school board member voted against a 9-11 tribute citing Islamophobia. So let's not remember those who died, some of whom were themselves Muslim. It's a yes or no question. Senator Cruz accused Merrick Garland of politicizing the Department of Justice while the AG fired back in a heated exchange we referenced earlier in the program. A bird caged. Twitter has suspended an outspoken Republican senator without explanation. Senator Mike Lee, a Republican out of Utah, said his personal Twitter account was suspended without explanation on Wednesday. Prior to his suspension, he tweeted about Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky, the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, and called on Japan to free Navy Lieutenant Ridge Alconis, according to Internet archives captured by Wayback Machine. Dire Times, the director of the Congressional Budget Office, informed House Republicans that the U.S. debt situation is dire, saying don't remove a single comma decades before woke culture. Author uh, Roald Dahl, he warned publishers on changes. He's now rolled over. Not happening in this state. The detransitioner slammed a representative for claiming trans surgeries don't happen in her state. Detransitioner Luca Hine called out Nebraska State Senator Megan Hunt for her comments on the floor of the state legislature that transgender surgery never happens in Nebraska. Hine tweeted a photo of her scarred chest from a double mastectomy she received in Nebraska at the age of 16. Hey, Nebraska Megan, I want you to come say it to my face that this isn't happening in Nebraska, she tweeted. Look me in the eyes and tell me this didn't happen. And in all caps, I was 16. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a Catholic bookstore in Florida is suing the city of Jacksonville over a human rights ordinance it claims mandates businesses whose transgender pronouns a requirement the store's lawyers argue violates the U.S. Constitution by effectively compelling speech. Free speech is for everyone, Alliance Defending Freedom Senior Counsel Hal Frampton said. Americans should be free to say what they believe without fear of government punishment. Ladia filed a lawsuit on behalf of the Queen of Angels Catholic store in Jacksonville's Mandarin neighborhood, arguing a city ordinance passed in 2017 violates the right of the business to freely practice religion, guaranteed under both federal and state laws. The bookstore's policy, which forbids gender-neutral pronouns, stipulates that employees uh, may only use pronouns and titles that align with the biologically origin biology rather originating. Um, uh, sex of the person being referenced, whether the individual is a co-worker, customer, or a member of the public, end quote. Attorney General Merrick Garland on fentanyl. It's an epidemic that's been unleashed on purpose. The AG says Mexican drug cartels unleashed the fentanyl crisis on the U.S. on purpose and urged the Mexican government to do more to combat drug trafficking. The attorney general made the statement while testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday. An Oregon bill would provide $1,000 monthly to the homeless for a period of a year. 
A proposed Oregon bill would provide the deep blue state's homeless population $1,000 a month that recipients can use at their own discretion. People who spend more than 50% of their money, their monthly household income on rent, and those who earn 60% or less of the area median income would also be eligible for the funding. More than 14,000 people are homeless in Oregon, according to the National Alliance to End Homelessness. More than 4,000 of those people are in the Portland area where Homeless encampments are busy uh, in busy neighborhoods and business corridors have become common. The U.S. House has passed an inflation transparency bill. The House on Wednesday passed the Inflation Transparency Act introduced by New York Republican Representative Elise Stefanek with the support of 59 Democrats. The bill would require the president to publish the inflationary impact of executive orders before they're enacted in response to President Joe Biden's policies. The bill's sponsor, Stefanik, says the bill passed 272 to 148, with 144 nay votes coming from Democrats and four coming from Republicans. Since taking office, the president has uh, signed a whopping 107 executive orders, which Republicans say have made prices skyrocket. The bill would mandate the Council of Economic Advisors and the Office of Management and Budget to publish a report for any executive action with an estimated economic effect of at least $1 billion. The bill's proposal comes two weeks after the Labor Department announced consumer prices increased by 0.5% in January and 6.4% annually. Chicago's police chief has resigned one day after Mayor Lori Lightfoot lost re-election. Chicago police chief announced his resignation one day after the election. Uh, she was the first mayor of the third largest U.S. city to lose a re-election bid in 40 years. Police Superintendent David Brown said on Wednesday that he would leave his post on the 16th, according to an emailed statement from the mayor. I will be stepping down as Chicago Police Superintendent effective March 16th, so the incoming mayor can begin the process as soon as possible to hire the next superintendent, Brown said. The House and Senate ended President Biden's attempt to push ESG investments onto seniors. The president is threatening to veto that legislation. The U.S. Senate on Wednesday voted to kill the Biden administration's attempt to push ESG investment practices on millions of American retirement accounts through a new rule for the Labor Department. By a vote of 50 to 46, Republicans were joined by Senators John Tester and Joe Manchin to pass the joint resolution that was approved by a bipartisan vote in the House of Representatives on Tuesday. That approved the repeal of the rule yesterday. This could tempt President Biden to use his veto pen for the first time. The investment rule fight is a proxy war for the GOP, taking on liberals promoting environmental interests and social equality in investment. The uh, bill comes as major asset managers such as Vanguard have uh, bucked the ESG pledges, citing fiduciary duty to their investors. Others, such as ESG proponent BlackRock, have sought to court Republicans amid their push to curtail so-called woke capitalism. Iran has reached uranium enrichment of 83.7 percent and could have enough to build a nuclear bomb in 12 days. U.N. nuclear watchdogs have detected uranium enrichment at 83.7 percent, according to a new confidential report from the International Atomic Energy Agency. Not sure how confidential it is if it's in the headlines. That finding raised the question on Capitol Hill of whether Biden will intervene in time to thwart Tehran's nuclear ambitions. President Biden's administration is very, very worried by Iran's progress toward nuclear weapons grade uranium, a top diplomat acknowledged on Wednesday. 
A top U.S. defense official said on Tuesday that Iran will need only 12 days to enrich enough weapons-grade uranium to build one nuclear bomb. Though the U.S. has also said it doesn't believe Iran has made the decision to resume its weaponization program. Experts estimate that the weaponization, manufacturing a nuclear warhead for a missile, would still take another one to two years. Senators look to raise the retirement age and rework Social Security. A group of bipartisan senators are quietly meeting to retool Social Security before funds run out in 2032. By the way, this is 2023. On the table is gradually raising the retirement age to 70 and creating a $1.5 trillion sovereign wealth fund, which would invest in stocks. That fund would be separate from the already existing Social Security Trust Fund, which is something of a piggy bank. If it uh, underperformed, Social Security would be shored up by increasing the maximum taxable income and payroll taxes. The U.S. Postal Service purchased a fleet of EVs. The service will buy more than 9,000 Ford electric delivery vehicles one year after an initial plan to buy predominantly gas-powered vehicles sparked controversy. The United States Postal Service said it has awarded contracts to buy 9,250 Ford EVs, part of a vehicle electrification plan Postmaster General Louis DeJoy announced in December. The United States Postal Service will also buy an equivalent number of gas-powered vehicles from the Stellantis and 14,000 charging stations. The goal is to have a fleet of 66,000 electric vehicles deployed by 2028. A deadly train accident in Greece has left at least 43 dead. Rescuers searched for survivors Wednesday in the mangled, burned-out wreckage of two trains that slammed into each other in northern Greece, killing at least 43 and crumpling carriages onto twisted steel knots in the country's worst-ever rail crash. The impact just before midnight Tuesday threw some passengers into ceilings and out of the windows. Greek Prime Minister called the collision of the passenger train and the freight train a horrific rail accident without precedent in our country and pledged a full independent investigation. He said it appears the crash was mainly due to a tragic human error. Local police said they arrested a station manager in connection with the crash and that a preliminary investigation is underway. Medical conscience protections are under assault again. In the midst of heaping more government regulations upon the American people, the administration does see a few Trump-era regulations it has targeted for removal. One of those regulations aims to protect health care workers' freedom of conscience. The Trump administration established the Conscience and Religious Freedom Division within the Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights with a specific aim to enforce conscience protection laws. Well, now the Biden administration is looking to reverse course and limit the ability of American health care workers to gain protection from efforts to force them to engage in practices they morally object to, such as if elective abortion. Joe Biden's focus is on protecting the left's ideological agenda, not America's fundamental civil rights. The so-called Havana syndrome is not caused by a secret weapon. The CIA and other U.S. intelligence agencies have concluded that Havana syndrome is not caused by a secret energy weapon. The strange condition that sickened several U.S. diplomats and intelligence personnel while serving overseas was first reported in 2016 at the U.S. Embassy in Havana, Cuba. Last year, a panel of independent experts suggested that the cause of the symptoms affected nearly a thousand individuals could have been some type of external energy source. However, U.S. intelligence agencies uncovered no evidence to support the idea that a foreign actor engaged in such behavior. 
um, let alone such a theoretical weapon even exists. That said, national, the director of the National Intelligence, Arville Haynes, emphasized that these findings do not call into question the very real experiences and symptoms that our colleagues and their family members have reported. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next hour, a classic interview with Kevin Goose. He's the author of Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. We'll also talk about what's happening on some secular university campuses in which worship and prayer has... Um, well, it's been uh, quite prominent on campus. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, the White House has finally set a deadline for a federal purge of TikTok. The Chinese-owned and uh, communist Chinese-controlled social media company will finally be banned from federal government devices. Last year, Congress passed bipartisan legislation banning the popular social media app from all federal government devices due to TikTok's massive data-collecting capability and practice. Following Congress's ban back in uh, 2022, the uh, Biden administration was given 60 days to implement it. Despite the massive support from Congress for banning TikTok, the administration dug its uh, rather drug its feet only on Monday, setting a 30 day deadline for all federal agencies to purge the app from all government devices. It's ridiculous that this has taken uh, so long to act to ban a well-known Chinese spying operation. But um, that's just the way it it was. Well, Democrat senators joined the GOP in opposing the president's ESG directive. Uh, Senators Joe Manchin and John Tester crossed the aisle to join the Republicans um, uh, in opposing the president's new rule, allowing 401k managers to consider investing their clients' money in companies adhering to the leftist political ideology of ESG, environmental, social and governance, rather than the fiduciary responsibility of growing the um, investment accounts Manchin blasted the president for an unrelenting campaign to weaken our national security, energy and economic security to advance their environmental and social agenda, which threatens the retirement accounts of 150 million Americans. Well, Tester likewise argued that it undermines retirement accounts for working Montanans and is wrong for my state. With both Manchin and Tester on board, the Republican bill, which has uh, already passed the House, will have the votes to pass the Senate. However, the president has promised to veto that Senate um, Republicans will not be able to override with both Manchin and Tester facing reelection bids in red states and 24. It appears this will um, this was a way for them to get on the record opposing Biden without threatening his agenda from advancing in an apparent double standard gas for me, but not for thee. Oregon's recently elected Democrat governor, Tina Kotek, campaign in part on transitioning away from the use of fossil fuels like methane gas in homes and commercial buildings. In Oregon, uh, anti-fossil fuel policies may be popular with the majority electorate, but it all appears to be little more than rhetoric for the governor. Evidently, now that she's uh, the Beaver State's new governor, she feels free to take advantage of the many benefits fossil fuels deliver, including having a dual natural gas and propane-powered Um, emergency backup generator installed at the official governor's residence. Mahonia Hall, it would appear that her uh, commitment to transitioning away from fossil fuels was only intended for those regular Joe Oregonians and not important for folks on the higher tier. Well, the state of Georgia has launched an investigation into Stacey Abrams, the twice-failed Democrat gubernatorial candidate, is being investigated over financial irregularities regarding her voting rights charity known as the New Georgia Project, 
Abrams founded the charity back in 2013 and later its affiliated organization, New Georgia Project Action Fund, the two of which have raised over $54 million since 2020. According to the Washington Free Beacon, there are myriad discrepancies in the New Georgia Project's financial disclosures, including a mysterious consulting payment of more than a half million dollars, as well as the New Georgia Project reporting no payroll tax in 2020. Meanwhile, Abrams has traveled to Nigeria to peddle her voting rights gift, uh, though we're not sure how she'll uh, spend her um, claim there. The U.S. Senate passed a bill demanding pandemic origin information be made public and seeking more money to find the money. President Biden is seeking $1.6 billion to tackle COVID relief fraud ahead of the Republican probes. So he wants another $1.6 billion to find out what happened to the billions that were already missing. Republicans introduced sweeping school reforms in the Parents' Bill of Rights, and nearly three-quarters of Californians don't want Newsom to run for president. Now, that could either mean they want him to remain their governor, or they don't think he would make a good president. It's not altogether clear. And in a, a moment of humor, former Chicago mayor, or at least outgoing Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot, blames her election loss on Trixie's Hobbitses. On this day in history, 1836, the Republic of Texas formally declares its independence from Mexico. 1877, Republican Rutherford B. Hayes is declared the winner of the 1876 presidential election over Democrat Samuel J. Tilden, even though Tilden wins the popular vote. There's nothing new under the sun. 1917, Puerto Ricans are granted U.S. citizenship as President Woodrow Wilson signs the Jones-Sharfath Act. 1933, the motion picture King Kong has its world premiere at New York's uh, Radio City Music Hall and the Roxy. 1939, Roman Catholic Cardinal Eugenio Pacelli is uh, elected pope. He takes the name Pius XII. 1939, the Massachusetts legislature votes to ratify the Bill of Rights 147 years after the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution went into effect. Georgia and Connecticut would soon follow. 1943, during World War II, the three-day Battle of the Bismarck Sea begins with the south, in the southwest uh, Pacific. 1962, Wilt Chamberlain, he scores 100 points for the Philadelphia Warriors against the New York Knicks, an NBA record that still stands. The score, Philadelphia wins 169-147. to 1985, the government approves a screening test for AIDS that detects antibodies to the uh, virus, allowing possible, uh, possibly contaminated blood to be excluded from the blood supply. 1989, representatives from the 12 European Community Nations agreed to ban all production of CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, the synthetic compounds blamed for destroying the Earth's ozone layer by the end of the 20th century. 1995, the Internet search engine web, uh, website Yahoo is incorporated by founders Jerry Yang and David Philo. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, at a funeral before an invitation-only crowd of approximately 2,000 in Charlotte, North Carolina, the children of Reverend Billy Graham remember America's pastor as a man devoted to spreading the gospel and one who practiced what he preached. Well, on Thursday, the House Ethics Committee announced that it had voted unanimously to establish a subcommittee to investigate embattled New York Representative George Santos. The Republican first-term congressman is admitted to fabricating large swaths of his resume and background, 
According to the committee, the panel will determine if Santos engaged in unlawful activity with respect to the 2022 congressional campaign, failed to properly disclose required information on statements filed with the House, violated federal conflict of interest laws in connection with his role in a firm providing fiduciary services, and or engaged in sexual misconduct towards an individual seeking employment in his congressional office, end quote. Representative David Joyce, a Republican from Ohio, will serve as the subcommittee's chairman, and Representative Susan Wilde, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, will serve as ranking member. Representative John Rutherford from Florida and Glenn Ivey from uh, round out the committee, one a Republican, the other a Democrat. The Ethics Committee noted that the merge, uh, the mere fact, rather, of establishing a subcommittee does not itself indicate that any violation has occurred. Santos has faced calls to resign from far and wide lawmakers from both parties, the Nassau County GOP and many of his own constituents. According to uh, a Newsday uh, a poll, 78 percent of voters surveyed from Santos district, including 71 percent of Republicans, believe the controversial uh, backbencher should resign. So far, he's refused, though he did voluntarily step down from his committee assignments until his issues are resolved. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up in just a moment. When we return in the second hour, a conversation with Kevin Goose, author of Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past, and a look at the ripple effect at secular universities. Young people crying out for more of God. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest in his latest book points out that throughout life's journey, everyone has moments when the past affects the present. We all know what that's about. We come to a crossroads where the past has to be faced, and we know on some level our lives require God's healing. Well, these junctures usually fall under one of three categories, believing our best is behind us, believing we missed our best through bad decisions, or believing the hurts caused by others or ourselves are insurmountable to live our best life in God. Well, his book is titled Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past, invites you to see healing. It's not only possible, but that it can be yours for um, for time and eternity. Well, Kevin Goose is my guest. He served in ministry since 1991. His deep conviction is that anyone can discover all of God's potential for their life. In addition to pastoring, Kevin has done leadership development, been a life coach to young fathers, a director of hospice, and a high school soccer coach. He's been married to Beth since 1989. They have four children, five grandchildren, um, two sons-in-law, and a daughter-in-law. He joins us today to talk about uh, his book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. You know, this is a season in which many of us, although not all, have more time to really think about uh, things that we might not um, be able to or, or we're able to avoid during times when we were more active outside of our home. So this is a very timely subject, um, dry bones redeeming your past. So let's begin by uh, drawing attention to the reference that dry bones uh, makes from Scripture. This is a reference to Ezekiel. Can you explain to listeners who may not be familiar with the story uh, what these dry bones represent? Yes, the, the dry bones in Ezekiel represents when uh, the Lord shows Ezekiel, the nation of Israel, and basically beyond hope. And as he shows him the vision of these dry bones, he asks him, 
can these bones live again? And Ezekiel, he answers wisely. He says, Lord, um, you know. And then God begins to show him how what was dead could be alive again. And so the reference for us in the book is that there are times in our lives, it just happened in my own story, but I know in many others, where we look at, so to speak, things in shambles, and God says, can I do something with this? And really all we know to say is, well, Lord, you know, meaning we sure hope so, but we're not sure. But God has a way of letting us know that, yes, he can rebuild what was broken and he can make alive what was dead. You know, I think oftentimes when we read in Scripture a reference like that you've just mentioned from Ezekiel 37, it's easier for us to imagine that that could happen than that our past, our history, the thing we look back on with regret, um, can be reconciled, redeemed, and we can move forward in hope. Why do you think it's so challenging for us to uh, to imagine that we too can find uh, redemption, that we can find uh, that our past is redeemed? There are a couple of things I think really are, are pivotal in that. One, I find that for many of us and for many people, forgiving themselves is sometimes harder than forgiving others because we, we replay thoughts, attitudes, actions, behaviors that we're like, how could I have done that? Or why did this happen? And so I think this forgiving of self, it's almost like we, we practically have a hard time believing that God is greater than what we've done, which ties into the second is, is that we don't make the shift from shame to regret. You know, shame like the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve confronted with their sin, they run from God and hide. Mm -hmm. where, where repentance is where we run to God and say, Lord, you're our only hope. And I think that for some people, whether it's not forgiving themselves or getting stuck in a place of shame, they have a hard time seeing a way forward. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that's uh, ripe territory for the enemy who wants to exploit our inability to fully experience the forgiveness, the redemption, and the healing that God has in store for us and can literally wreck our lives based on a past experience that we may have repented of and moved on from. Uh, so it's really important, this book, Redeeming Your Past, getting us to a place where we not only accept what God has given us, um, that we are able to move forward without shame, as you've described. Uh, absolutely. It, you know, it's this it's the sense that the enemy lies to us when, when he tempts us, somehow believing that God is holding out on us, right? Temptation at its core is I'm questioning God's character, his commands, but then if I give in to temptation and sin, then he just kicks us when we're down and tries to make us believe we're unlovable, unforgivable. And so your point is, is so right that this moving past that shame and then seeing that God can do something um, is so key. How personal is this book um, to you? It's very personal. You know, I had been in ministry at when, when really I hit bottom. I'd been in ministry about 25 years, uh, had been married about 27 years, and I was the poster child for burnout. Uh, I was just a hard driver who just on some level believed if I pushed harder, I could escape what were those either hurts from the past or even the disappointments in the present. And I became very bitter and very blinded. And unfortunately, there came a point where I crossed some ethical and moral boundaries that required me to step back from, from ministry and walk through restoration. Um, I had broken my covenant with God, with my wife, 
I had, you know, brought hurt and to other people, my children, family, and really had brought shame to the name of Jesus Christ. And so personally, I had to walk this journey when Ezekiel, although he hadn't wrong, but in comparing to drive, I did the cash keep on me. It was like, Lord, I don't even see a way forward. But God revealed himself in a powerful way. And so this book comes out of uh, God healing me and my family from a broken place that many would have thought wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, definitely a hopeful book. What are some of the lessons that you learned on your journey to, uh, to healing? You know, there, there are kind of a few that really stand out to me as pivotal, and, and that is that God can see us through the lens of forgiveness and give that forgiveness, but I have to be patient for the journey of other people to see my heart and my life. Mm. It's, it's kind of like I want – God sees my heart, and so he knows my intentions, but other people can only see actions. And so I think a first principle was – I couldn't be frustrated or put demands or deadlines on people for their journey to not just forgive, but also to trust. And that was pivotal because the deeper the relationship, sometimes the longer the journey. And so it was important for me to learn to rest in my identity in God, even though he was very clear to me that the journey of healing with people is different. And just because they have a journey doesn't mean that they're doing something wrong. But that was a first key lesson. Mm, mm. Yeah, and that can be very, uh, very challenging. Now, what advice do you give to someone who feels that they have made such horrific uh, mess of their life, they've made such serious mistakes, that there's really no hope for a better future? I mean, you've already given us a glimpse into your own story and that journey of healing and restoration. But what do you say to the one who says, well, but, you know, my situation is is beyond the pale? You, you know, first is that... Even though it's hard for us to to come to grips with what we're feeling, there's a couple key principles. It's good to acknowledge what we're feeling, but I, I heard a pastor say once, my feelings are real, but they may not always be right. And in that, there has to come a place where I would say to somebody that we have to make a decision, even if our emotions have to come along in time where the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ is greater in my life than what I've done wrong. Uh, And so there's a place of saying, Lord, even my failures can't be bigger than you. And then second in that, I believe there's a hope in Scripture that because God doesn't hide from us the broken people that he had to redeem and restore. I mean, many people, if we were God's HR department, we, we may not have hired Moses you know, or David, we would have said that, that, that Peter was there. We would have said, what do you mean Rahab or Ruth? But God has this amazing way to say, look, you see what that's broken? But that person is ready for me to be their everything. And now I can assure them we see them as great saints of the scripture, but we have to be mindful. They began as broken people that God had to redeem. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take a hopeful look of how to redeem our past from that status of dry bones. Again, my guest this afternoon is Kevin Goose, uh, and his book is titled Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Kevin Goose, who is the author of Dry Bones, 
redeeming your past. Now, you break down three ways in which we look at our past, uh, coming to the conclusion that uh, we are beyond hope. Can you describe for us these three ways in which we tend to look back and imagine that there is no uh, hope for redemption? Yes, the first is the glory days, and that's where a person looks back at a time and says, my life was at its best then, and they are struggling with either trying to recreate it in the presence or having a frustration that they can't, and so there's a sense in which they have to let go to move forward. The second is when people have regrets over missed opportunities. It's kind of like the the opposite of the first. It's saying, oh, if I would have done something different or better or right, my life wouldn't be where it is now. And they believe that they're living a consolation prize life. That's well, this is the best I can have. And they don't have a full picture of redemption. And the third is the healing from past pain, which can be either or both pain that I've caused or the pain that has been done to me. And there are times people are dragging that along with them as an open wound or a bitterness or a pain in their life that God needs to bring healing to. Mm. You write that our decisions can either break the bonds of the past or perpetuate past failures into ongoing behavior. Explain what you mean by that and where we begin once we've identified, okay, this is where I am. This is where I'd like to go. How do I get from here to there? Yes. I like to picture it from like a, um, a chore my mom used to give me as a child, and that was pulling weeds. I would sometimes try to snip those dandelions off at the top and think the job was done, but all it took was a little bit of heat and time, and, and the weed would return. For many people, they'll look at the example or the event that just happened, and they'll try to you know, deal with that in the moment, but they don't go back to the root of where things have come from. And as a result, they tend to be on a repeating cycle. And so one of the keys is that whether it's the glory days, past regret, or past pain, is being willing to kind of dig in, whether through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, a skilled helper, a pastor, to be able to dig in and say, now, wait a minute, where did this start in my life as a root? Because this needs to be dug out. I'm tired of the snipping and going back, snipping, returning, and going back. And so by getting to the root, we can experience healing that doesn't just deal with the symptom, but deals with the core issues. Mm. What role does humility play in redeeming our past? Oh, this one's, this one's tough. You know, these tensions of Scripture, it, it tells us that when we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, then He will lift us up. Because one of the challenges when we're trying to get our past redeemed is we can fall into the traps of either control, uh, impatience, or trying to force something. And humility is, is basically saying, Lord, I, I will stay in this posture of repentance and renewal as long as I need to and as long as you have me to. A great example is Zacchaeus, who when he comes to Jesus, he says, I'll give half of what I have to the poor, and if I've taken from someone, I'll return it fourfold. Well, Zacchaeus probably couldn't remember everybody he had ripped off. But he basically said to Jesus, I'm in a posture place that as you bring people across my path, I'm willing to walk that healing journey. And so humility keeps us from being defensive, which could communicate to people that we're really not sorry. Humility is key to showing the core of our heart that we want to walk this journey with God and others. Mm. One of the things we tend to do when we're on a journey is to look to the right and to the left, to look at others, compare ourselves to them. Uh, But you make the point that when we do that, we can 
um, distort the way that we see our own lives. We're perhaps less honest or, or our, our goal is distorted or we think less than we ought to. How important is it that we not compare ourselves to others? And what do we do if that's a practice that we are in the habit of doing? You know, if we look to others, the, the problem is it's almost like a type of deflection. And so if we see that starting to happen, it, it doesn't mean we don't love others, but we recognize I can only take responsibility for what God has placed before me. I think as Peter, when Jesus restored him after his three denials, right after Jesus restores him in John uh, 21, Peter looks at the apostle John and says, well, Jesus, what about him? And the Lord says, well, what is that to you? You follow me. And so I believe that when we're distracted, it's like the runner is coming to the tape, but they look to the side to see how the other person's doing. It slows them and it actually robs them of the victory that they were intended to have. And so I think that it's, it's not a self-absorption, but rather it's a focus that says, my eyes have to be on Jesus and the work he's doing in me. Then others will see that through me. If I compare myself to others, we tend to get coveting or jealous or we feel inferior, and all of those are just hurdles in the healing process. Well, that is so true. I ran for the uh, University of Oregon, and one of the things the coaches always drummed into us was to run straightway through the line, not to look to the right or the left, because you're absolutely right. It will deprive you of those um, absolutely critical seconds as you approach the finish line that mean the difference between victory and defeat. So that's such great, um, great advice. Now, I know for you, the church um, came alongside and supported your journey toward healing. Can you comment a little bit about that? Because I think people have different experiences. What role should we anticipate the church uh, to play? And as those of us who are the church are listening, what should our response be as we're witnessing uh, or participating in the journey of uh, those who are looking to see their past redeemed? There are kind of two categories when it comes to the church that I think are pivotal. One is what I call those, those core people who will be part of the redemption process. Think of like with the Apostle Paul, Ananias, who came to him right after his conversion, or Barnabas, who went to him and believed in him and built him up during his discipleship journey. God will have key Christians who can see past what we did and into the core of who we are, either because maybe they weren't hurt as deeply or God's just given them a tremendous gift of a redemptive heart in how they see others. It's vital for a person to connect with those core people who can help along that journey. As to the crowd, I think if people, they know someone who's, who has fallen morally or has failed and committed sin, is that we should never celebrate it. And second, we should avoid cynicism. It's okay to say, I'm mm. disappointed, I'm hurt, um, I feel betrayed. Those are truthful statements, but the recognition is to say that Jesus is more powerful than what they have done wrong in my life. There were people who showed grace that were part of the crowd. Now, long-term, I didn't necessarily stay in, in deep relationship because I was no longer their pastor, but they did it the right way before, so to speak, that relationship faded as it, as it needed to, while others in the core, they walked with me over the course of months and years, and God used them in a pivotal way in my life. 
We're talking about the book Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. My guest is Kevin Goose. Uh, bitterness played a role in your healing process, and it's not altogether uncommon if you are reflecting back on those glory days or regrets over missed opportunities or um, you're healing from past pain that either you inflicted on others or others have inflicted on you. How important is it not to uh, descend into bitterness on this journey toward healing? It is essential. Uh, unfortunately, I learned the hard way. When Paul in his letters talks about how bitterness can cause us to bite and devour one another, uh, Jeremiah the prophet, God even said to him in Jeremiah 15, 19, that the precious and the vile had to be separated or sifted. Bitterness is a poison. It, it, it's something that can be vile in our lives, and what it does is it pollutes the precious work of God. And so bitterness focuses on what life isn't that I wish it was or what the other person did or your frustration over what I did. And one of the keys was recognizing that God had to extract that and reinstate in my life and as he does in others' lives, gratitude, thanksgiving, praise. Uh, you know, in the scriptures, whether it's Job or, or other characters, they teach us that even when life is difficult, we can come to a posture of worship and praise and joy, but bitterness will just pull us down. And for some people, they're concerned, but if I let go of that, the other person will get away with it. Or what if God forgives them? But at the core, bitterness hurts the individual. As one pastor, uh, Timmy Evans says, forgiveness doesn't make the person right. It just makes me free. Mm, that's so good. We're talking with Kevin Goose. His book is Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. We're going to take a quick break and continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're uh, listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Kevin Goose. He is a pastor and author. His latest book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. It is a personal work. He doesn't just write about the subject from a, uh, the standpoint of uh, just being theoretical, but this is an experience he has uh, has enjoyed in being reconciled and restored and offers his insight and scripture uh, to uh, those who are in that same position. One of the things you write about is that we oftentimes try to justify our behavior, even when we know it's wrong, and we can uh, really struggle with just admitting that this was wrong. There's no justification for it, although we may have a list of reasons why it happened. Can you talk a little bit about um, having that uh, perspective where you're willing to just admit what's wrong rather than um, uh, trying to justify our behavior? Yes. What happens is with justifying our behavior is that, is that somehow I'm trying to say that someone else's wrongdoing justifies me doing wrong, or in some cases, I'm looking for a shortcut to a destination or a goal. And so what happens is there's these defenses. So like think of Adam in the garden. He tries to blame God. He tries to blame Eve. Yet the most beautiful example in scripture is David in Psalm 51, where after confronted with his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband and Nathan the prophet comes to him and we get to Psalm that comes out of his brokenness, he starts with saying, Lord, against you and you alone, I have sinned. And we joined. There was adultery, there was murder, there was deception. But David understood the problem began with his relationship with God, and then it affected everything else. If we're willing to just say, Lord, no excuses, uh, no explanations, I sinned, I was wrong, 
what it does, it kind of it lets our guards down, it breaks down the defenses, and then it opens us up for the healing. Otherwise, we're trying to jockey and play games with God and others when God then has to wait for us to become completely broken and ready for his restoring and forgiving work. Oh, that is so good. But I think we do tend to uh, try to fix the people around us rather than work on ourselves when our own past needs redeeming. I suppose that just is an outgrowth of our sin nature. But the temptation is to deflect attention from ourselves, to blame shift. And even in cases where there is blame to go around, what you've just described is what God is is calling us to, is to come honestly before him for the, the role that we have played. Yes, because at the end of the day, I can't take responsibility for what someone else has done. I can only take responsibility for my part, even if someone doesn't seek forgiveness and I think they should have, or if someone didn't apologize and I think they should have. If we can just get ourselves away from that, we come down to, okay, Lord, before you, I want to have things right. The other is, is that if I put focus on others, I can try to become the teacher while I'm still in the role of the student. In other words, God is still, I would say, simmering things, soaking them through our lives and teaching us. And he wants us to wait until it becomes something in the deep place of us before we share it. I know that God put on my heart two to three years before the book was published, the idea of it, but God made it clear, yeah, but I've got to get you far enough down the road, and I've got to do a deeper work in your life before you can really talk about it. And so sometimes we're excited to share what he's teaching, but it's, we have to be the student before we step into the role of trying to offer help to others. Mm-hmm. You write about uh, what you call rationalized compromise. Can you give us an example of uh, what that is and uh, how we can avoid it? Yes. So what happens in rationalized compromise is it may not be my failure, but I see the failures of others, and they're significant enough that I could point the finger and say, ah, they're the reason that I'm not close with God or not close with others. So sometimes it could be the flawed messenger in a situation where a pastor like myself has to walk through restoration. Maybe it's someone who keys in on scriptures that speak about other people's sins but neglect the ones that speak to my heart. It's like the phrase, I love what the Bible says to others. I'm just not too fond about what it says about me. It's this sense of rationalized compromise that I look at what's around me, and then what happens is I'm blind to what's going on in me, and I'm like a person driving down the road with no side mirrors or rear view mirror. I'm crashing into others and causing damage and pain and my blind spots are actually causing as much, if not more, problems in my mm. sphere of influence. Rationalized compromise is where we say, all right, I may not agree with what that person did, but let's put the side mirrors and the rearview mirror on and let me see things from God's perspective. Yeah. Well, let's talk a bit about uh, forgiveness. You talked about it earlier in our conversation, but uh, what does forgiveness look like in the context of redeeming your past? Now, that may apply to me as I'm seeking forgiveness um, from God and others I may have hurt. It might be forgiving others who have hurt me. And uh, as you uh, talked about earlier, forgiving myself. What does forgiveness look like and entail when seeking to redeem one's past? The first is, harking back to the earlier statement, is that I have to acknowledge that Jesus is greater than every sin, including the sins committed against me 
or committed by me. So when Jesus teaches us that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven, we make a decision that even if our emotions need time or our thoughts are wrestling, that we do not commit, so to speak, a type of idolatry where someone's evil is greater than God's good. Second, as we walk through that forgiveness, we have to learn to walk in the light of his forgiveness of us even before others are able to forgive and trust us. We must be patient to walk with them, but there's the essence in which our identity has to be solid in God. It's kind of like a phrase a pastor who spoke into my life said. He said, Kevin, you are who God says you are. We have to know who we are in God, even as we're walking through the repairing journey with others. And then finally, part of that forgiveness, whether it's forgiving ourselves or forgiving others, it's this recognition that I can't tell somebody when to trust me, but I can choose to be trustworthy. And if it's forgiving another person, it's just saying, God, they may or may not be close in my life moving forward, but I can't let what they've done hold me back. And if it's my sin that needs to be forgiven, it's acknowledging that God has a plan that moves beyond that moment, and he doesn't want that to be the defining chapter of my story. Mm, yeah. At the end of the book, you um, use a metaphor of uh, how people respond at an accident scene. I found that very intriguing. Can you describe a little bit about that that section of the book in which uh, you list some of the reactions people have to an accident um, and how that relates to this journey toward redemption? Yes. Yeah, so you picture yourself in a traffic jam on interstate, and we know where there's an accident up ahead. And as we come up, there's all these different people. The healthy ones are the first responders. The men and women whose job it is is to help remove the accident and then help those who are impacted and injured on the road to healing and restoration. The others are people that we call like the historian, the one that wants to keep reminding you what you've done wrong, or the gossip, the one who just wants to tell others, the one who celebrates that they didn't fail like you did. And so what I described is, is that in the accident scene, not every person we come across in the accident of our lives is from God or is best for our healing. We need to look for those trustworthy people who want God's best for us and recognize there'll be people who come in and out that may want to observe and see the wreckage, but they're not interested in what happens after that. And so the chapter is very much about helping people discern who are the helpful people and who are the others we need to let drive on by. But that's such a great uh, part of the book. I really appreciated that. Again, we're talking about the book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. My uh, guest is Kevin Goose. Any final uh, advice you'd like to give to those um, who are beginning that journey toward redemption and seeing that their past can, in fact, be put in its proper context when they uh, come to God and seek that, um, that restoration? I would say one, complete surrender to God. Even if we don't know where things are going to go from here, I would encourage them to start with placing everything in his hands and let Jesus Christ be the center of their life. Two, be patient. Sometimes healing is instantaneous, but other times God chooses to work in a journey. It may seem like it'll never end, but to stay patient and don't try to look for shortcuts. And third, even though there may be times where our feelings or our thoughts may point us to past coping mechanisms or past behaviors, we have to recognize that 
we put those things behind us. We never want to be the one who returns back. God is leading us to the promised land, and there'll come a point where the wilderness must be behind us. And so there's a resolve within them. And then just finally, that even when they're not sure who they are, read what the Bible says about what God declares over their life, and let those be reminders of who they are and who they can be in him. Amen. Kevin, thank you so much for talking with us today. I so appreciate you and your book, Dry Bones. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. By way of something of a follow-up from yesterday's program in which we focused our attention on what began in Asbury University, Kentucky, and what is continuing across the country, Michael Grybowski, um, who is the mainline church editor for the Christian Post, uh, had the headline, A Ripple Effect from Asbury, Secular Universities Now Seeing Revival Gatherings on Their Campuses. And he writes that as the Asbury Revival Movement continues to influence Christian universities, churches, and secondary schools, some secular institutions of higher learning are also seeing students gather on their campuses to hold worship gatherings. Students at Western Kentucky University and Bowling Green have been holding gatherings, including one last week that was attended by a few hundred people on the main lawn of the campus to worship and pray together and share their testimonies. A campus ministry uh, minister rather for the Baptist campus WKU's ministry told the Christian Post that the gatherings were directly tied to the revival at Asbury. We have seen a ripple effect from that university On the WKU campus, several students from WKU attended services at Asbury, said the uh, the minister uh, from WKU. After returning from Asbury, several of them gathered for prayer and worship at the chapel on campus and invited other students to join. One of the students' uh, leaders who attended an Asbury service, a freshman, then invited several leaders of uh, campus and church ministries to meet to explore a potential joint campus ministries worship and prayer gathering. He says that they planned a service for the 23rd of February on the National Collegiate Day of Prayer, adding that we have long been praying for and continue to pray for revival on our campus. And we discussed how revival is measured not merely by how many students gather or how long they stay at an event, but by the results of life change. Well, the large gathering at the main lawn was organized chiefly by BCM, that's Bowling Green, some initials, other college ministries like Crew and Christian Student Fellowship, as well as Hillview Heights Church, New Life Church, and Living Hope Baptist Church, all in the area. Well, Johnson added that the uh, university leadership uh, has been helpful in directing us to go through the process of reserving space on campus for events and to make campus security aware of the gatherings. Uh, Thomas Weekly, a part-time professor at WKU and staff member of uh, CREW, had traveled to Asbury to participate in its revival event on the 12th of February and was there for several hours. It was very worshipful, musical, orderly, respectful, hopeful, prayerful, God-honoring, and glorifying. That's how he characterized it. He said three WKU students traveled uh, for the revival on the 16th, and while they returned in the very early morning, they were inspired to worship at the public campus Interfaith Chapel. After returning at 4 a.m., they went directly to the WKU chapel. It was closed, so they stayed outside asking God to continue to work, noting that it was around 25 degrees Fahrenheit. The chapel opened at 8 a.m. They went in to pray around 10 a.m. 
A few more showed up, maybe 10. By uh, by noon, there were 30. By 1 p.m., 45 were there. We estimate around 90 students came sometime during the day. A weekly told uh, the Christian Post that he met the student leaders of that gathering, and um, there they planned out a February 23rd gathering. More than 300 attended, and around 50 stayed well after 10 p.m. as the temperature dropped it to around 45 degrees. Weekly was optimistic about the long-term impact of the gatherings, telling Christian Post that a planning um, team is meeting this week to see if we were um, being led to sponsor another campus-wide time. The Ohio State University, uh, another public university, also held a worship gathering last Thursday evening on the second floor of the Student Union Building, which lasted into the early hours of the next morning. Pastor Aaron Fry of Sozo Church in Columbus, Ohio, told the Christian Post that the attendance at Asbury Revival on February 17th and the OSU Prayer and Worship Gathering last Thursday, along with his wife, there were people in the room that have been praying for revival on campus hmm, for at least 15 years. My wife and I went to support and pray alongside these students. I believe that those who are blazing the trail at OSU are more qualified in these moments to speak into this. Priscilla Wan, who's the director of the Faith, Hope, Love House of Prayer, who's involved in campus ministry at OSU, this is Ohio State University, also attended the event, telling Christian Post that it was powerful. A small group of young men from OSU led two hours of worship and prayer um, with Cajun, electric guitar, piano, and two singers. Virtually the entire time was was, uh, vertical, uh, meaning no speaker and hardly anyone addressing the crowd. Some students were on their knees praying for an awakening on their campus and praying for the lost. I would estimate about 200 people showed up. The organizers needed to open a second room and asked all non-OSU students to go to the second room. Wan didn't uh, consider the event tied to Asbury, explaining to the Christian Post that students organizing the gathering had already begun planning uh, this before the Asbury event happened. They had a pure heart to simply want to minister to Jesus. And although Asbury Revival was amazing and created more excitement for the OSU Collegiate Day of Prayer, the organizers were not stirred to gather because of the Asbury Revival. They were open to a similar awakening happening at OSU, but their primary motivation was simply to gather and offer Jesus worship and prayer from OSU students. Oan told Christian Post that she believed and hoped that the students will continue to gather to worship and pray, noting that the students are hungry for a move of God on their campus. Now, this seems to be a pattern on campuses across the country. Now, this is a secular university. There's a hunger for a move of God on their campus. Above all, I think that the students are simply wanting to minister to the Lord with prayer and worship, regardless of whether revival breaks out. I think we'll see more collaborative prayer and worship gatherings on campus, but I think we will also see uh, see it organically happening among students in their dorms and social gatherings. Well, the Christian Post also reached out to OSU leadership with a spokesperson sending a brief statement noting that they support the right of our students, faculty, and staff to peacefully express their views and to speak out uh, about issues that are important to them. Again, this is the secular university leadership that doesn't really understand what's happening, and of course they don't need to if they 
are not part of the spiritual community, the Christian community on campus. But it's exciting to me, and I appreciated that on the campus of Ohio State University, it wasn't motivated by what happened at Asbury University. There has been a longing for more of God on that campus that predated what happened at Asbury. It added a bit of excitement um, because it seemed that there was a consistent theme in other places where students are gathering. I hope we will pray for uh, these students, these colleges and universities, those who are seeking more of God, who would like to see revival beginning in their own hearts and then spreading outward on their college and university campuses and beyond that into their local communities and across the country. Um, the, the fact that these are young people who are initiating this time, not um, as was mentioned yesterday in the article I quoted from, not to generate likes or followers, but to focus their attention solely on their love and commitment to following Christ, to hearing his voice and to acting out of obedience, to confessing their challenges and their sins, repenting and committing to uh, to follow him more closely. So again, just another example of what's happening on college campuses, um, secular as well as Christian campuses across the country. I want to, uh, we're out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Tomorrow we'll share this week's Christian Outlook, but we'll also take a look at the lighter side of the news, so I hope you'll join us. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.